Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Alyssa Parody, Director of Government and Chapter Affairs for the International Hearing Society, joins Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless for a discussion moderated by Brownstein Strategic Advisor Mark Begich about the IHS's Fit to Serve campaign. As IHS saw more veterans approaching private practices to address hearing loss, its members worked with Brownstein on a grassroots campaign to adjust a policy limitation that complicated the VA's ability to provide service. Alyssa and Kate discussed the initiative, its success, and the tremendous and ongoing drive from IHS members to see the campaign through to the finish line. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast, but today it's a little special. We have a guest with us that's not part of the firm, but we work a lot with her. But let me first introduce uh, Kate McCandless, who is our policy director at Brownstein and is the go-to advocate for healthcare clients. Over the course of her career, Kate has represented and advised clients across the healthcare spectrum with regard to federal health care programs and policies. Thank you again, Kate. As usual, health care is your topic. and Happy we're to glad, be back. Glad you're here. Alyssa Parody is joined the International Hearing Society in January 2011 and currently serves as Director of Government and Chapter Affairs. In this role, Alyssa is responsible for advocating for the positions and priorities of the International Hearing Society and its membership at the federal level, managing the organization's payer advocacy and fundraising efforts, and overseeing IHS's state and provincial advocacy program. She also oversees IHS chapter affairs programs which involve working with chapter leaders to advance their organizational priorities. Prior to joining uh, International Hearing Society, Alyssa spent five years managing state legislative affairs for the National Trade Association on ear, nose, and throat physicians. She also served as a lobbyist for the Connecticut hospital system, worked at, on various state and local campaigns in Connecticut and Kentucky, and worked for the Connecticut General Assembly as a legislative aide. Alyssa graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts degree with the University of Connecticut Stores in Political Science. Alyssa is one of just two remote staff members for IHS operating out of Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Well, let me start for, for the lay audience that's out there. You know, you have members that are listening, but you have other people who would say, what is this? What do you do? And, uh, you know, who are the hearing aid specialists? But you don't just represent them. You have others, too, in your group. So why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch of that? Sure. Um, well, well, really briefly, um, International Hearing Society was founded in 1951. So we're, we're a well-established organization, and we're a professional membership association. So we are an organization comprised of uh, health care professionals in um, and hearing, and specifically those who dispense hearing aids. So we are the only organization that represents hearing aid specialists, and we also have uh, dispensing audiologists and physicians as members. Um, and just briefly, what it is that our members do, hearing aid specialists are an entry point for anyone looking to get hearing aids, and so consumers can... Um, get a, a hearing evaluation. They can go straight to the hearing aid specialist to get a hearing evaluation. Um, if there seems to be a medical component, then they'll get the referral to a physician. Um, but if there's nothing interesting about their hearing loss, which is most of the time, then they work with that person to understand their lifestyle and their needs. They um, will then recommend an appropriate hearing aid or hearing aids for them. And then the relationship really exists for the life of the hearing aid, which is they're typically five to seven years or so. So because 
um, treating hearing loss is, is very complex, and um, hearing aids themselves require pretty frequent adjustments and cleanings, and, you know, the ear is a, a very uh, interesting <laughs> environment, as you can imagine. So um, so that relationship is very long-term, uh-huh. um, and that's really kind of the crux of what we do. So I, at the end of this podcast, I have to ask you some tips on how you tell your mother or mother-in-law <laughs> that they do need hearing aids in, in a polite way, but we can talk about that later. Sure. <laughs> uh, but do you have a special class of hearing aids for congressional people? Again, we'll, we'll keep that off to the side here. Um, well, one of the, pro- the efforts you did uh, was called Fit to Serve, working with the VA and, and trying to change what they did there. Tell me about what that campaign was about. What was the, why did you do it? And I must, I can only assume because the growing number of veterans, especially getting older and also because of the kind of environment they were in, especially in Afghanistan, Iraq, and hearing loss was clearly uh, part of the situation they were engaged in. Tell me more about what, what that was about and what the campaign was and how your members were engaged or not engaged, and tell me a little about that. Sure, and and I think that's a great point. There was certainly a surge, you know, with recent military action of veterans who were, you know, coming back from their service with um, hearing loss. And fairly young age. Absolutely, absolutely. And so when we started to really notice a change, we started getting calls from members, and they were saying, you know, we're seeing more and more veterans coming in, Mm -hmm. and they need our help. And there's a couple of reasons that they were going into a private hearing aid specialist office. You know, Mm -hmm. typically they would go straight to the VA and get services. And so we were finding that, you know, maybe the distance to travel to a VA clinic Mm -hmm. was simply too far. That that happens a lot. Well, especially these days with almost 25% of veterans living in rural America. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to see. certainly understand that. Yeah. You can see them quicker to see a doc rather than get into the VA clinic or the hospital. And the appointment wait times, that was a real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we continue to see veterans coming into our our offices now looking for help. Um, Or they had gone to the VA, and because the backlog was so great, you know, the the audiologists are doing as well as they can with, with what they have right. um, in terms of time. But but a lot of veterans were coming into our offices and saying, you know, I went in, I got my hearing aids, but they're not working for me. Mm-hmm. So if they're not properly adjusted, if the lifestyle of the veteran is not um, – if, if you can't consider that to its fullest in making the adjustments – they're just not going to work. You know, the it could VA, be worse than not having them because now they're uncomfortable. They're not working. Absolutely, they're, yes. Right. And, we, and then you end up with the in the drawer syndrome, mm-hmm. which is very real and uh, really unfortunate for veterans because the VA has access to the absolute best hearing aids available. But the veterans don't get the value if they are not programmed correctly. So this is really what we were seeing, and, and the members started reaching out saying, "What's going on? How can I help?" Um, historically. Hearing aid specialists were used um, in, in many years ago. There was a voucher system, and they helped veterans through the voucher system. And then there is some policy um, that allows for the VA to use hearing aid specialists in the um, in the you know private marketplace. Mm-hmm. But there are some restrictions built kind into that very policy. Very narrow. If, uh, very very yeah. narrow. Yeah. So so the VA had to you know exhaust the veterans' options to get to their clinic, which may be too far, or to find an audiologist in the field. And and you know there's there's unfortunately a little bit of a shrinking pool of audiologists out there. And so you know we were getting calls. Our members were getting calls from the you know VA clinics, and as, as choice progressed, you know from choice administrators saying you know hey can you help? The hearing aid specialists were saying yeah we'd love to help, um, but the problem was this this 
policy limitation uh, meant that the VA wasn't actually allowed to contract with us. So, so that was really kind of things coming together. Well, and I also think it's important to note, um, you know, Alyssa has some amazing members. Uh, many of her members are veterans themselves, and right. they wanted to help. They wanted to help their neighbors. They wanted to help their uh, friends from church. They wanted to help the people that had come in and asked them for help. And unfortunately, at that time, the VA didn't have a lot of other answers other than don't touch these. These are property of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. have been issued to a veteran, but they are technically property of the government. So you are not allowed to to touch them or to make the modifications to them. It's like a computer warranty, right? Don't touch it if it's an Apple or a Dell. Let us (laughs) touch it or or, or you're right. The the, the warranty's lost. And I I think it was really personally frustrating to a lot of Alyssa's members because, again, it's it's the sense of service um, that was driving this forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and what was interesting in all that is, you know, our our members are are inclined to say, you know what, we're just going to take care of you. Right. We're going to take care of you for free. You know, I heard one story out of um, Louisiana, which was pretty shocking. Uh, talking to a, a hearing aid specialist who said, you know, I've got I've got this veteran who's been coming into me, and I've been gladly providing the free service. And I got to that point where that person wasn't coming in anymore, and I called them and I said, you know, haven't seen you in a while. What can I be helpful with? And the the veteran was actually feeling guilt about accepting the free service, mm-hmm. which is really the opposite of where we wanted to go. It's like, just please accept it. So the other thing that we were kind of experiencing, which was interesting, is I was hearing from members that local VA clinics were actually reaching out to them and saying, can I send veterans to you? We need hearing tests. We need um, adjustments or we need cleanings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the hearing aid specialist would say, absolutely, sure. But the VA clinic said, no contract, no fees. We just need you to serve these people for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one case, we were hearing of you know thousands of referrals wow. to, to one office, which was really incredible. So clearly there, there was a need. There is a need. Um, in fact, I just uh, heard from one of my members in Wisconsin who – Five years ago, he called me and he told me about this one veteran. No names, of course. And he said, you know, this veteran, he, he doesn't want to wait. He wants to get hearing aids through me, so he's actually paying out of pocket, even though he has this benefit. And he just yesterday yesterday came back to this hearing aid specialist and said, I need my next set. I don't want to go through the VA. I'm going to spend my money, um, which is really unfortunate. So was it – was in the, so in the law, because it was so narrow – you had to figure out how to how to in, uh, expand that enough so now your members could be contracted with the VA in some form, and that was that was the hook, right? That was the, the challenge. So it's really two part, um, and and the uh, conundrum that you're describing is that you know the veterans that were waiting in the clinics that right. were waiting for appointments um, were waiting because the schedules of the audiologists there who are again as Alyssa said doing the absolute best that they possibly but there was can. There's such a demand they couldn't exactly meet it. the schedules of the audiologists didn't allow for these veterans to have the amount of time that they needed to learn uh, how to use their. Um, hearing aids appropriately, or you know, they didn't have how to maintain have, them, how to deal exactly with them. Yeah. how to you know, if a spouse comes in, how to teach the spouse to mm-hmm. to uh, remind uh, her husband how to change the battery. I mean, those right. those types of services just weren't getting communicated um, based on time restrictions, and so 
when you think about what other providers are there in the VA continuum of care who could step in, there weren't licensed providers that were at that level that could provide those services. There are uh, hearing assistants, audiology assistants in the VA, but they are also not allowed to touch hearing aids or to interact with patients in a meaningful way. Right. They are allowed to you know, take orders over the phone right, or right. whatever welcome, it is yeah, that they need to, to be office, done. Exactly. You know, yeah. um, and so there wasn't this, this level of provider that could take the extra time and also really amplify the amount of time that the audiology clinic could spend seeing veterans. Yeah, give them the care and the professional service that the VA veteran needed. Exactly. Right. And part of the reason that there wasn't that classification um, of, of provider in the VA is because the VA is very prescriptive about the types of providers that they can hire. And in fact, the list appears in Title 38 of the United States Code. Um, and, and it is... From neurosurgeons all the way down, a, a pretty comprehensive list of the types of uh, providers that can be uh, that can be used to s- in in service at the VA. And so, our concept for legislative language was to immediately address the problem in the audiology clinics mm-hmm. at the VA. We would. Uh, simply change Title 38, um, which sounds a lot easier. I was going to say, it sounds like, you know, you just put a few words in and it'll just expand it, but that's not easy, right? No, it's not. Because you got to find some congressional champions, people who, because in this world that D.C. is all about is if you don't have a champion, you can't get past go. You might have a lot of people who might be interested, but you got to find people who step out and can actually articulate it enough where members will turn to them and say, you know what you're talking about. I'm just going to vote with you. And that member has now the credentials to bring people to the vote. Did, what was that like? Did you have to go out there and find those people or did they come to you? What was and I'm sure your members helped once you got that champion. Yes. It, in some ways, it was very organic. Um, we had uh, a member in Wisconsin, uh, a different member um, who, you know, called me up one day and said, you know what, uh, I went and I, I stopped by Representative Sean Duffy's office mm-hmm. and I told him about this problem we were having and his staff really took an interest in it. And, you know, that enabled us to th- then go have a conversation in the D.C. office. And it really just kind of grew from there. Mm-hmm. Um, Congressman Duffy really understanding what the need was and hearing from other constituents concurrently. And then, you know, we were able to identify some other great champions in the House. It um, makes a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and Congressman Duffy really took this on, got very involved, you know, from the press standpoint, made it one of his top five of 2015 bills, oh. um, which we really appreciated. And on the Senate side, um, when we started, um, the House was was differently controlled, but right. we had really strong champions both in um, Senator Moran and Senator Tester. Mm-hmm. Well, Senator Tester has a huge percentage of veterans Absolutely. population. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the the rural component was very meaningful. Yeah, um, those those offices really understood the issue and the challenges of trying to get to the VA, um, and and I think. Most people do have their own experience with hearing loss. So I, I think that made it all more real. But, you know, they're they're obviously champions for veterans. And so, you know, there was a real natural partnership there. Well, and I think, Alyssa, 
downplays her role in some of this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of those many, many hats that you described at the beginning, Senator Begich, that she wears is is the grassroots hat. And uh, Alyssa is fantastic at getting her members to respond and to engage, uh, as you said, in a very nonpartisan way, um, you know, not looking at this as a Republican or a Democrat issue, but really, you know, an issue, again, of service and mm-hmm. of service to veterans. And it was overwhelming to me, having worked on a number of campaigns with a number of different organizations <laughs> to see just how committed they were to this mission. And a lot of that came from Alyssa's leadership. Um, she was able to really engage them and show them a lot of value mm-hmm. uh, for the investment that they were that they were making. And I think one of the most notable things that Alyssa did, you know, in addition to getting the bill passed, right, spoiler which, alert, yeah, <laughs> right, which I was going to say, now what happened? Yeah, was, uh, <laughs> you know, Alyssa actually recruited two, I think, celebrity superstars um, in in the veterans service world uh, to to be spokespeople um, for for fit to serve and I wanted to talk a little bit about that just briefly because I think it's really impressive what she was able to accomplish well you know there, there were so many there's so many wins that came out of this um, this whole experience beyond the bill as you're saying and, um, and and one of the things was was the connections that we've made and um, and, and I Establishing a really strong spokesperson really made a huge difference mm-hmm. to us. Um, First Sergeant Matt Eversman, some people may know from the um, story of his experience in the Battle of Mogadishu through Black Hawk Down, mm-hmm. um, became our national spokesperson. And he's just incredible. I was going to say, that, that's, some, that's some umph there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little bit of a power play there. And, and I'll tell you, he really got into, um, you know, the... the um, congressional meetings he just thought oh, that was, was the greatest and um and it is it's really an honor to be able to walk the halls of congress and make a difference um and we were able to engage also commander kirk lippold mm-hmm. um who is very well known for his role leading the uss cole when it was um when it was sh- shot and so you know engaging these folks who can really um i think tie with members of Congress and their staff, you know, the impact of uh, of hearing uh, blasts and, mm-hmm. and and then really, you know, not only just what you incur while, while you're in the service, but then the real life challenges you have when you get out of the service, because now you're looking for meaningful employment. Right. You're trying to communicate with, you know, friends and family. Yeah, and hearing, um, hearing's a part of it. I mean, absolutely. if you can't absolutely. hear when you're out on a job and you're supposed to be doing certain things and your hearing is marginal, yeah. it could impact your ability to be employed. Right. Absolutely. And it can lead to depression. And of mm-hmm. course, there's been a whole lot of attention placed on suicide and the PTSD. That's right. And, um, and so the ability to communicate with loved ones is really critical in somebody's um, path back. So um, so they were very passionate about doing that. Um, I also want to share on, on the, sort of the grassroots side, and this is very much comes full, full circle, but the, the member engagement, one of the things that was probably my proudest moment in terms of my members was we had some of our uh, members um, who were either veterans or non-veterans, mm-hmm. there was a mixture, who were engaging with their local veteran service organizations. So we, one of the things we've been, we had been doing in D.C. was working with the veteran service organizations to try to build support. Of course, their support then helps our congressional oh, champions. It's a it huge part of the equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And so what was really exciting was, um, you know, there was one in particular that we were having uh, um, a time trying to enable them to take a position because mm-hmm. they need the policy from their 
their state their chapters mm-hmm. to take a position. And I understand that process and I respect it. And so what we were able to do was to get some members um, to go out to their state organizations, their local organizations, their state organizations, and actually help them develop the policy from the grassroots hmm. up. You know, and that really came full circle to helping us do what we were doing here in D.C. It makes it even stronger because your national folks then have this backing that they can walk right in there and say, it's not just me, the service provider here. It's all my local chapters want this. That's a powerful tool. Absolutely. So, So the bill passes. Here we are. That was, what, a year and a half ago or so? So in... People's lives, that's a long time. In Washington, D.C., that's like a second. Uh, so, But in reality, it is a long time. So where are we? Is it, is it happening? Are, are we seeing more people getting care? Or And the VA is going through a lot of change right now. And I know that's impacting people in the sense of delivery of services. So how, what's happening here? And maybe, you know, Kate, you can give the politics on this, but what, what is going on? Is the VA embracing it? What, what's the story? So the mandate uh, to the VA is that they will convene uh, with the secretary, a group of stakeholders, and those stakeholders... Which they don't have a secretary right now. now. Exactly. <laughs> so, You're getting ahead of me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and those stakeholders will then you know, appropriately determine the credentials for hearing aid specialists. Which includes to, the society, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. To essentially then be appointed as personnel uh, in these audiology clinics. And the first thing that I think has really held things up, as you mentioned, is that there's been some shakeups and changes at leadership. Um, You know, the legislation was passed uh, just after President Trump was elected. And so there was a bit of, you know, turnover and change. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we we all know people who were at the VA that are no longer at the VA. You know, there has been quite a bit of change. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a little bit more recently, a a vacuum in leadership, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as it relates to having a a, a secretary, we, of course, have an acting, but it's different Mm -hmm. when you're acting. You don't don't get to make some of the tough decisions. You do kind of day to day, but you're not going to... Step not going to rock the boat, right. and so, um, so I, I think that 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 has really changed. The other thing that has changed pretty dramatically is that the VA has uh, undertaken a review of its care in the community program, mm-hmm. uh, which we called Choice. Uh, we now call mission, I believe. Yeah, um, and it. so we are we are uh, continuing to evolve uh, as it relates to understanding how veterans can better be seen both in the VA facilities as well as in their their local, you know, hometowns. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's been a lot of, uh, of transition in VA. Um, but lucky for us, the champions that we cultivated uh, in the House and in, in the Senate, uh, you know, not only continue to really care about this, this was not just a one and done right. uh, for, for these members. It. Exactly. And you got to get it going. And so you know, we've had commitments um, from Representative Duffy's office and Representative Walls, who are our champions on the mm-hmm. House side, to engage uh, with all levels at VA to move this forward. Um, Representative uh, Duffy has made a lot of outreach um, to a, a I'm sure people who are listening to this maybe know this, but, uh, you know, he has been an outspoken supporter of of the administration and was on early uh, as a supporter. So there are a lot of people who take his phone calls, um, which is very helpful to us. And we didn't know he was going to be in that position when he (laughs) initially became our champion. So that that's good. And then in the Senate, uh, as Alyssa mentioned, our two champions were Senator Tester and Senator Moran, both of whom. Uh, were the at at the time the chair and ranking member of the Milcon VA 
Appropriations That's Subcommittee. Right. And so we have been able to utilize that relationship to uh, engage in a strategy of uh, appropriations report language that would require the VA to begin to move forward on this project. Are there other things that are kind of on the boilerplate you want to touch on or things that Brownstein might be working on additional to this or in combination of this? Yeah, sure. And, and um, I, Certainly, there's a broad spectrum, um, and and I want to just take a moment and say that you know our success on fit to serve, you know, there's a there's a lot of places to credit, right? But the expertise, the relationships that Brownstein brought, and there were times when it was like, oh my gosh, this bill will <laughs> never pass because this just happened, right? And Brownstein swoops in, they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. So the success it's that a can-do attitude around this place. I know that. <laughs> That's for sure. As we uh, found some some new issue areas of the last couple of years, um, certainly for our, our members are very familiar with the fact that there's an increased interest on developing a classification of over-the-counter hearing aids. Um, and so there's some work to do with the FDA there. Um, it was a very natural fit for mm-hmm. us to approach Brownstein and, and say, you know, what kind of team can you put together? I know you've got the experts in every area. You know, let's talk about this. Let's partner on this. And there's other issues that over the years we've worked on together. Um, and I always just have full confidence that we are getting the best of the best and the brightest. And, and Kate's awesome. Kate, <laughs> Kate, Kate Kate's actually, turning red right I know, now. Kate You're actually, really making her feel great. She was awarded our James P. Level Advocacy Award oh, congratulations, last year um, Kate. For, for her relationship and all she's done. So um, there's a broad spectrum of things we're working on, and we're really happy to have the relationship with Brownstein. Um, and and I, I hope that our members can really feel the effects of that. I can tell you one thing we always pride ourselves here on is we're bipartisan, and it is that can-do attitude. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is. People bring it to the table. I think the Brownstein team says, okay, how do we solve this problem? And then they look within the organization and say, who are the people that you can bring to the table? Sometimes you see them one time, sometimes you see them a lot of times, depending on the moment in time. And it's one reason why I came to this firm was because of that kind of uniqueness. It's not, you know, one person has their client. They stay with that client. They don't ask anyone else's help here. It's like, okay, here's a situation, and we're we're literally going to battle. What do we do? Who are the assets we bring to move this forward in a way that uh, takes care of, in your case, your members, your you as a client, to make sure at the end of the day it is successful? Let me uh, close with this and say, so you – um, Alyssa, you have a lot of members out there, and you have a variety of impact uh, on different things on local and state and national level. Um, what can your members kind of, if if you if they're listening, what, what do you want to tell them that they should be doing or can do to help advance the cause of the society and and the work you all are doing? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Thank you. There's a couple things. Um, you know, one is is talking to other people, other professionals in the field, and you know, encouraging them if they're not a part of IHS to become a part, because obviously we're we're all stronger together. And um, to join is not an issue. You just get you you go to your website, find out more information, and yep. become a member. Absolutely. Um, the other thing is, you know, 
we do issue calls to action. Obviously, that was very hot and heavy during um, Fit to Serve when we were on the congressional side of things. And, and know, that's through emails and yeah, letters yeah, and information. Yeah. Uh-huh. Responding um, when we're looking for help is really important. And then probably the um, most important for me right now is um, to donate to our efforts. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a political action fund. We simply look for voluntary donations from members to support the government affairs work we do. So it's oh, so it's not part of your baseline membership fee, which is unusual. It, I will tell unique. you that it's right now. <laughs> I mean, certainly salaries and everything are covered through right. all of that. But, but the for, government affairs piece. Yeah. And, and, um, and I would say, you know, the spectrum of work that we've done has grown over time. Um, and so, of course, the, the financial demand goes up. And all that being said, you know, I, I do hope that members will take away from this message that um, we we spend the money very wisely and that we have engaged a brilliant firm in this process and continue to engage them. And, um, and, and like I said, all that we do is contingent upon voluntary donations. So I do encourage our members to go to our website um, and make a donation to what we call the Advocacy Alliance. And, and that's voluntary, but it's helpful, and it makes a difference for your work that you need to do. And, and the fact is you have success. So your members have gotten value for what they've already put in, and, but your issues are growing. Uh, as the complexity of the industry grows and the needs grow, that means your needs here in Washington grow, and that takes resources to help make it happen. Absolutely. Well, any last words, Kate? I think this has been such a wonderful conversation. It's so great to uh, to think back through all of the activity that uh, that International Hearing Society and Brownstein have engaged in together, and you know, it really was a labor of love. Uh, at the end of the day, when when you look back on the things that you've done with your life, to think about the things that you've done for people that have served your country, uh, you know, really are, are moving. And I appreciate Alyssa giving us the opportunity to do that and work on her, her behalf. Well, thank you, Kate. And thank you, Alyssa, from the International Hearing Society for this moment and this podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.